What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. You've heard plenty about autonomous cars, but what about autonomous weapons? They can hover or linger and choose all by themselves when to strike. What's being done to tackle the ethics of these killer robots? And we look into why a fisherman in Cuba counts condoms as part of his toolkit. But first... Over the past two years, British Prime Minister Theresa May has been painstakingly negotiating an agreement with the European Union over Britain's exit. And I can say to the House with absolute certainty that there is not a better deal available. And my fellow leaders... But her plan was resoundingly rejected by the British Parliament, and the EU has said it's not willing to reopen the negotiations. What's on the table is the only deal that's on the table. Today, Mrs. May faces another vote on her plan at Westminster. At stake is her ability to lead the Brexit negotiations to a successful conclusion, with Britain leaving the EU on March 29th. She risks having control wrested from her by Parliament. This week sees a vital battle of amendments on the floor of the House of Commons. The main ones getting attention are one put forward by a very senior Labour MP, which has some support in the Conservative Party among kind of Remainers and more moderate leavers. Anne McElvoy is a senior editor at The Economist. She's been following Brexit twists and turns for, well, years now. Well, if we haven't got this deal in place in time to leave in an orderly fashion on March the 29th, then Parliament will mandate the government to delay Brexit. I think the most important thing is to prevent us crashing out with no deal, particularly by accident, which is what I think is a real risk now. And there might be other dramas this week too. It's all a bit of a maze, but the result matters a lot to the future of Brexit. Why has it been so difficult for Theresa May to broker a Brexit deal? Well, Theresa May's been in a very difficult position. She's got competing factions in her party who want different things. One of the key sticking points has been that any Brexit deal must not include the creation of a physical border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. This provision is known as the backstop. The backstop has been a major stumbling block in the Brexit negotiations. This backstop is intended to be an insurance policy for people of Northern Ireland and Ireland. If the backstop has an expiry date, uh, then it's not a backstop. The backstop, the backstop, the backstop, the backstop, the backstop, the backstop. One of the amendments being tabled this week by Sir Graham Brady aims to remove the backstop entirely and replace it with, well, something that hasn't yet been specified. The other one comes from the Conservative side. It's put forward by the chairman of her own backbenchers committee. And even Theresa May has been stumping for it. He is going to say, look, I can bring a certain number of MPs with me, maybe enough to get this deal over the line, 
if there's another way of guaranteeing no return to a hard border that isn't exactly like this backstop. Despite the disagreements surrounding it, Theresa May has built her Brexit plan around the presence of a backstop. That would keep the UK in the EU customs union for a transitional period to avoid the creation of a physical border with Ireland. So why is the Irish border so important? It was an extremely large bomb on the railway line, aimed simply to kill and to damage. Between the 1970s and 1990s, bombings and attacks were distressingly common in the United Kingdom. The attacks were part of a 30-year conflict between rival factions of hardline Protestants and Catholics over Northern Ireland, known as the Troubles. The Troubles was a violent outbreak that had roots far further back in history, to a century ago when the Irish fought a war for independence. Immediately after the First World War, many Irish nationalists were not happy with the British government's proposals that they receive some form of self-government inside the United Kingdom. They wanted complete and separate independence. Ivan Gibbons is an expert in British and Irish history, who recently wrote a book called Drawing the Line, the Irish Border in British Politics. This provoked a reaction from mainly Protestant, exclusively Unionist, but based in the six northeastern counties of uh, Ireland, who wanted to remain with the United Kingdom. That is what gave rise to the border in 1921. When the Irish War for Independence ended, the island was split into two parts, the Republic of Ireland, which was independent, and Northern Ireland, which remained part of the United Kingdom. But the end of the war didn't end the disagreement. Republicans, who were mostly Catholic, wanted all of Ireland to be one country, Unionists, who were mostly Protestant, wanted to stay in the United Kingdom. For decades following independence, the countries were at peace, but the border remained a sensitive area. It was attacked regularly during the border campaign of the late 1950s and early 1960s, and then again became a target during the Troubles. The audacity of the IRA bombing team was evident. Under the checkpoint watchtower, they loaded a 1,000-pound device... Army patrols, individual policemen and individual soldiers were shot dead, were attacked on the border by the IRA. So there was a very, very effective IRA campaign, particularly in the 1970s and the 1980s, against the border, seeking its removal. One of the key demands of the Irish Republican Army at the time was a removal of the British armed forces from the area. But the border was significant for parties on both sides of the divide. To many nationalists, Irish nationalists living on or near the border, this was a desecration, if you like, of Irish national unity. And they objected strongly to that from a symbolic point of view. If you were an Ulster Unionist, a Protestant, you saw, symbolically at least, the establishment of an Irish border as giving you some sort of security in which you were able to dominate the politics of Northern Ireland, albeit that you were a minority in the whole of Ireland. And so they regarded the border as a bulwark against depredations coming from over the border. The bloody decades-long conflict ended in 1998 with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. That devolved power to Northern Ireland and helped bring an end to the bombings. The smiles said it all. Two years and a very long night of intense yet delicate negotiation finally brought a settlement which it's hoped will form the bedrock for lasting peace in Northern Ireland. 
It fossilized the conflict. It stopped the conflict. It didn't solve the conflict. But by and large, it guaranteed peace, uh, an uneasy peace. The military presence at the border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the island was removed. But if the United Kingdom leaves the European Union, that frontier between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland will be the only land border between the EU and the UK. If the UK is outside the EU's customs union, goods will have to be checked. Now there's fear that if Brexit causes a new physical border to be introduced, it could rekindle sectarian divisions and become a target for violence. The argument is that if that border was made very, very visible with the construction of military installations, etc., or even customs posts, that would give an excuse for paramilitary organizations who don't accept the Good Friday Agreement to embark once again on a campaign of violence on the border. Confounding things even further is that Northern Ireland has been without a government for two years, mired in its own internal squabbles. And just last week, a car bomb was set off in Londonderry, a hotspot of violence during the Troubles. Anne McElvoy joins me to talk about the impact of the border on the Brexit negotiations. And this, this border question is such a sensitive one. Uh, how is that playing into today's votes? Well, I think it does in two ways. One is quite practical, as in, is the backstop and all those arrangements around it, is that going to be the thing that stops Theresa May getting her deal through? This is the second go she's had at it. And the other reason is that for those saying, look, we don't seem to be able to get a deal in place to leave the EU in an orderly fashion on March the 29th, then we're going to have a delay to Brexit. And that's why it's particularly dramatic over at the Palace of Westminster. So it's this this hard border, this physical border that everyone's so concerned about. But how do you do it perhaps without a physical border? You could say a border in 2019 does not need to consist of barbed wire or or bricks. But the problem is if you're relying on future technology and developments and it all working the first time, you haven't really got a clear enough answer to the problem that you've been set. So Theresa May's initial deal just absolutely trounced in Parliament. These amendments uh, being put forth today might just round off the corners, might make it just just able to be pushed through. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think the most interesting of these amendments really take her deal in a completely different direction. They're trying to stop something happening if she can't get her deal through. And it's pressure on her either to move her negotiating position on Brexit or to risk the whole of the the Brexit thing being thrown up in the air, us not leaving on March the 29th, that leaves all kinds of space open, possibly for calls for a second referendum, but certainly for pressure to change course. And I think we will know by the end of the day what has happened on that. And thanks very much. Thanks very much, Jason. Whatever happens during today's votes, Brexit is bound to get even more fraught. Don't worry, our journalists will keep providing the analysis you need, and we'll keep you posted here on the show. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise, where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S., If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. (laughs) 
Sometimes, reporting for The Economist involves getting muddy. I was at the uh, wet and windswept Salisbury Plains, where the UK Army trains, back in December, for the uh, autonomous warrior exercise. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defence correspondent. Uh, This was a big military exercise with lots of soldiers from different countries, lots of uh, industries, defence industry representation, people who had brought their equipment to show off. Um, And it was designed to showcase autonomous systems. These were not mostly systems that kill people. They were things like uh, logistics vehicles that might carry your bag over tough conditions. They were vehicles that might evacuate your casualties over perilous minefields. Um, But they were all things that could do various jobs without constant human intervention. And what captured your interest about those? Well, I I think what captured my interest about these is that there's an increasing amount of autonomy given to machines on a battlefield. They can do more and more things uh, themselves. They can navigate places. They can uh, look around and sense objects. They can fly waypoints. They can perform various tasks. And so your interest then is how these almost inevitably develop into weaponry. That's right. So uh, we are seeing autonomy uh, also develop in some systems that do kill people or blow things up. While the the armed forces are obviously keen to point to uh, cuddly, life-saving machines and, and, and vehicles because they don't like the idea of the public getting spooked off by robots that kill people. That seems to me to be opening an absolute Pandora's box of, of ethical questions. Are the, are the ethical debates kind of keeping up with the technological advances? So... The ethical, the legal debate is revving up. And does the international community wish to do nothing? Uh, For example, there is a coalition called the Campaign to Stop Killer Robots. really accept the moral and ethical issues involved in deciding to allow machines to kill humans on their own. This is a, a gathering of about... 89 NGOs in 50 countries that would like to have a preemptive ban on what they call fully autonomous weapons. Fully autonomous weapons that would need no human intervention to pick and fire at their targets. The United Nations has also been thinking about this. There is a a process uh, at the the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, the CCW, which is the group that used to consider things like landmines, uh, and other UN officials also getting involved in this. One of them is, uh, for example, Christoph Haynes, who was the special rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions. Uh, But the, the shift here is really that the weapon becomes the warrior. Um, and there's no longer that distance and that, uh, or actually that, that interaction between the human beings um, and other human beings, but the weapons themselves. So some countries are uh, banding together against this and certainly some will be for it. Who, who's who and, and what are the, the, the arguments? So we have a a significant cluster of countries who agree with the campaign to stop killer robots and say, yes, we do need a ban. And they say, look, these weapons present legal, ethical and political difficulties. It's not very clear whether they can tell the difference between civilians and combatants. And therefore, they, they simply would struggle to comply with international humanitarian law, IHL. They say that the ethics of having machines kill humans uh, essentially robs war of its dignity. And they say these weapons might 
escalate situations in very unpredictable ways. We may find they have uh, conducted some kind of really destabilizing attack across a sensitive political border, across into another country, without humans being able to stay on the loop, without humans being able to essentially keep command of that process. So those are the arguments that they present. And they say, look, we have banned landmines, we've banned cluster munitions, we've banned biological and chemical weapons. Uh, why can't we also ban autonomous weapons uh, ahead of the time when they, they effectively kill us all. Now, pitted against that view is a number of uh, other countries, notably the United States, uh, the Russia, the UK, who say, well, look, there are some difficulties around autonomous weapons, but we don't plan on building fully autonomous weapons. And indeed, in some cases, the use of autonomy might actually allow us to conduct strikes that are more precise, which would make it even more humane. And what do you think is the right way ahead? Well, I, I think um, a ban is, it is premature for a number of reasons. And I think one of those is the question of how do you enforce such a ban? I think that's a fundamentally difficult challenge. That's particularly problematic because the difference between a drone that is remote controlled and chooses to drop its bombs when a human says so, and a drone that effectively chooses uh, its own targets, it chooses when it should drop its bombs, the difference between those two things is not how the drone looks, it's not the hardware, it's the the inside, it's, it's the software, it's secret code. When does a weapon become uh, automatic and when does it become autonomous? But I think it's also incredibly difficult for states to understand and to establish when their rivals would be cheating on any such ban. And any arms control agreement that can't be verified, that can't be monitored, is one that's going to be very shaky indeed. So I'm skeptical about the prospect for a ban, but I think I'm clearly more in favor of, of steps that would mean we think a lot harder about how these technologies will be deployed and how humans are going to keep control over them. But realistically, is it likely that international agreements and so forth will hold much sway over this technology that's going to be so appealing to, to armed forces? I would say that a lot of that depends on how useful these are in military terms. Always the utilitarian argument. <laughs> well, uh, what someone said to me the other day is that military officers are control freaks. They don't like to have weapons that go out of their control, that do things they don't want. But history does suggest if they are uh, uh, profoundly important in military terms, if they yield a significant strategic advantage to states, and if one or two big powers start using them, Yes, the ethical, the legal cases are probably going to be shoved uh, under the pillow, out of sight and out of mind. Well, thank you, Dan Shishong, for putting that in context for us. Thank you. The beautiful city of Havana, Cuba, is full of surprises. It was early evening, and I was walking along a quiet stretch of the seafront near the ferry terminal in Old Havana, and there was a man standing next to the water blowing up condoms. Roseanne Lake is The Economist's Cuba correspondent. Not just one condom, in fact, three of them. Um, wh why on earth is this man blowing up condoms on the seafront? Well, I had the same question. But I eventually found out that he was fishing. 
in Cuba. Uh, actual fishing equipment is very hard to come by because Cuba is a very poor country and the U.S. has an embargo against it. So um, Cubans have to be rather creative in the ways that they do many things, uh, including fishing. So this young man was blowing up the condoms as a way of turning them into floats that would keep his bait near the surface. Very, very resourceful. How how did you come by this sort of investigation into the, the use of condoms? Well, I was doing a story on the hair trade in Cuba. You know, women who have a need to uh, increase their income and so they sell their hair. And I was at a beauty salon where um, this hair is on display, where other women buy it uh, as hair extensions. And I noticed that the hair was tied together with condoms. And I asked, you know, is that what I think it is? And they said, yeah, yeah, we don't have rubber bands. So we just use condoms um, to hold the hair together. And I said, are there other things that you use condoms for that I wouldn't expect? And it turns out there are many. Well, now I'm dying to know. Tell me, tell me some more. Um, well, I went to a pharmacy uh, and started chatting to some of the ladies there and asked, What are the things that people use condoms for other than the obvious? And they said, hair tying, that's one thing. But they also use them to fix pipes. They, you know, put them over the places where a leak may have sprung. And I'm told they're actually very effective, which is a testament to the quality of the condoms in Cuba. Um, Butchers have a very curious use for them. They fill them with water and they use them as slide traps. So it seems condoms become slightly reflective when they're full of water, and that scares flies away. Another of my favorite uses for them is taxi drivers who use the lubricant in condoms to polish the bonnets of those 50s cars that they're so proud of. Now, we've all been uh, ended up having to ask difficult questions in journalism, but I imagine perhaps one of the most difficult would be just walking up asking people about their condom use. Yeah, especially in Cuba. Um, It's an interesting question to be asking. And I kind of made the mistake of of asking someone, a gentleman, what his favorite use. And he was very honest in his response. He told me, as he well might, and, and with tremendous gusto, that his favorite use was the one for which the product was originally conceived. Right. Well, it, it's hard not to see the funny side here, but I, I guess the, the serious point is that there are shortages of everything, and that's why people use condoms for lots of things. But if lots of things are in short supply, why are there so many condoms around? Condoms are widely available and, and very inexpensive because they're subsidized by the Cuban government, which is keen on family planning and sexual health. People really appreciate this. Um, sometimes they go into short supply, but for, for the most part, they're around. Uh, one gentleman even said, you know, it's it's never been so economical to perform the national sport. <laughs> Roseanne, thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Join us tomorrow as we dig into the unfolding story around Huawei, one of China's technology champions. The future of the global internet may hang in the balance. In the meantime, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where... Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. 
Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.